Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, my name is Justin, and I am uh, one of the pastors here. Just good to be able to gather with you together this morning. So uh, let's go ahead and pray together as we, uh, before we get into God's word this morning. Father, we uh, are just, just thankful, Lord, this morning that we have the opportunity to gather as your people in this place. And Lord, as, uh, as we recognize, this is, is not a special place, a special building. The only reason that this time is special is because your people are together and because your spirit works in and through the times that we gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. As we sing songs about you and to you, as we open up your word and see your word given to us, we pray that as we do that this morning, that you would do a work in each of our hearts, each of our lives, no matter where we're at. Father, I'm thankful this morning that there's people that are gathered with us this morning that don't yet know you. And Lord, I pray that you would use this time in their lives as well to encourage them, to draw them to to yourself. And so Lord, no matter where we're at this morning, where we're at on our journey, our spiritual journey in this life, I pray that by the power of your spirit, through the preaching of your word, that you would do a work that only you can do for your glory and for our good. And so we give you this time now. We pray that you'd be honored by it. We pray that this would give worship to you because you're the only one that deserves worship. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to be back in the book of Luke this morning as we read earlier and we continue on in our Advent series. Advent, uh, if you missed last week, we kind of explained a bit about what Advent is. Uh, We actually posted, uh, made a blog post on our website this week about that. So if you're curious about what Advent is, I'd encourage you to go check that out. But we're going to be in the book of Luke again this morning and through the rest of this month. So if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, uh, we'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, There's some guys that will bring one around to you. So just keep your hand up until they find you uh, so that you can read along with us this morning and be able to look at God's Word. Uh, And just know that those are always available to you. If you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift uh, so that you can have God's Word and read along throughout the week. About two weeks ago, I went to the movies. I don't get to go to the movies very often, but had the opportunity to go to the movies with my friend Craig, uh, and we saw the movie Interstellar. And it is a a very well-done movie, in my opinion. I loved it. I'd go back and see it again. But one of the things I like about movies like this is when the director cuts from one kind of intense scene to another scene, kind of suddenly, and what, as you start to watch this new scene, what you realize is, is that there are two stories that are converging to make an epic, an epic kind of story. There's an epic in the making through these kinds of movies, and Interstellar is one of those kinds of movies. And as we continue on in our Advent series, we see that last week we looked at one scene, and now we're quickly cutting to another scene. But as we look at this scene that's unfolding, we realize that there's a converging story that's taking place. There's an epic in the making. But this is not the stuff of Hollywood imagination. This is God's story. In a dark world, light is breaking in. It's not a story told for the sake of entertainment. It's a story told for the sake of salvation. It's a story told for the sake of restoration, for redemption and glory. And so I'm looking forward to jumping into this with you today, this morning. And again, no matter where you're at, maybe this information is new to you. Maybe these stories are not familiar to you. And that's totally fine. I hope and pray that God would use this in your life this morning, whether you've heard this a hundred times or you're hearing it for the very first time this morning. 
So if you have your Bible, go ahead and jump or open up to Luke chapter 1 so that we can jump into this. Uh, we're going to read, uh, we're going to go through, excuse me, the verses that were read earlier. So thank you, Lise, again for reading God's word over us this morning. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 is where we're going to spend our time. Last week, we looked at the verses right before this, 5 through 25, and we saw that God, through broken silence, brought a message of hope Not only to Zechariah, not only to Elizabeth, but to all of the world. He told them that they would have a son, and that this son would be the voice in the wilderness, the messenger sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord and to prepare a people for the Lord. But no one knows yet what's going on. Because Zechariah in his unbelief is struck mute by the angel that comes to him. And so he's unable to relate what he's heard from this angel. But God is still at work. This same angel, Gabriel, who stands in the very presence of God, is sent to another person with another message. And this message sounds very familiar, but it's very, very different. Let's look at verse 26 again. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. When Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, it was in Jerusalem at the temple. There were a lot of people around outside waiting for his return as he went to light incense in the temple. But here what we see is that Gabriel goes to a town called Nazareth. Now, Luke mentions that it's in Galilee because Nazareth is such a small, insignificant place. And people can do the same thing today when they're trying to describe where they're from or where they grew up. You might say, well, I live in Hendersonville, Tennessee, which is near Nashville. Or I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is just north of Philadelphia. We even do it around here. We say, I live in Fairfax, Virginia, which is just outside of D.C., But Nazareth is not just some town near a city. It's a podunk place. It's unimpressive and it's unexciting. It's a place people moved away from, not a place that people moved to. It's a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But Gabriel is not just sent to a specific place. He's sent to a specific person, a young girl named Mary. In verse 27, we learn some interesting things about Mary throughout this whole narrative here. We see that multiple times that we learn that Mary is a virgin, which seems like some random, very personal information, but it's relevant to the story as we'll see. It also tells us that she's betrothed to marry a man named Joseph. Now, being betrothed in this time in the culture of God's people in Israel is not just about being engaged, like our culture understands engagement. Being betrothed is a legal thing that happens between a man and a woman. It's basically saying you are essentially married, but for a period of a year, you are legally bound together, but you're not, you haven't consummated your relationship sexually. You're not living together with one another. So it's, a, it's an official legal engagement, not something that can just be broken if someone decides not to get married. It would have to go through a divorce proceeding for a betrothal to be broken. We also learn that Joseph, this man that she's betrothed to, that she's engaged to, is from the line of King David. So Gabriel is sent to a specific place, to a specific person, with a specific message. Verse 28, he comes to her and he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
The setting is simple, but the announcement is great. This angel says to Mary, you are favored by God and that God is with you. I mean, what an awesome statement. The Lord, the God of all creation is with you. And this would be true in more ways than one as she would soon find out. But like Zechariah, Mary is taken aback a bit by what she sees and hears. It says, verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Not something you hear every day. And just like Zechariah, as we said, that he, he would be freaked out with an angel coming, standing before him, speaking to him. In the same way, Mary, going about her business, all of a sudden encounters this glowing man of light who comes to speak to her. In this way, she would be a bit perplexed. She's not flat out hysterical. She hasn't passed out or fainted, but she's really wondering what in the world is going on. She's thinking, why is this happening? What does this mean So Gabriel gives some additional information. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now before we go any further in this announcement, something important has to be said here. What the angel says to Mary in verse 28, what he says to her in verse 30 about being the favored one, about finding favor with God is not Hail Mary, full of grace. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, that's a poor translation of this text. It's not Hail Mary, full of grace. This is Hail Mary, recipient of grace. Mary is not the source of grace for anyone. Mary is an object of grace, just like you, just like me. As one commentator and scholar says, the way Mary helps us is not by giving us grace as if we pray to her, but by showing that God can give us the same kind of grace that he gave to her. And that leads us to our first point that we see in this text, and that is this. Our God gives grace to the ordinary. Our God gives grace to the ordinary. Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But that's exactly who the Lord comes to. Those who are needy, those who are humble, those who are desperate for him. See, Mary is an example of those who receive God's grace on the basis of his initiative. Mary's not looking for this. She's minding her own business, going about her normal activities, her normal way of life, being a faithful woman. But in the midst of that, God intervened in her life in a powerful and dramatic way. Listen, her experience isn't our experience. No one else in this room, no one else in all of the world will give birth to Jesus. But her experience is an example for us. And here's why. Because God gives grace to the lowly. God gives grace to the insignificant. God gives grace to the ordinary. And we need to be reminded of that this morning because the reality is at the end of the day for all of us is that we are ordinary. Sorry if that burst your bubble this morning. That's not what your mom or your dad told you. You are ordinary. Just plain old ordinary. But that's a good thing for us to hear this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul drives this point home even more for us. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, the Apostle Paul writes this. He's writing this to the church at Corinth, but it's for us this morning as well. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Notice he says, not because of you, not because you figured it out, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is calling us to boast in our ordinariness. He's saying, don't don't think that you're a noble person. You're not a wise person. You're not a strong person. God chose you because you're not any of those things. You're the last one to get picked for the kickball team. But God comes to you because God gives grace to the ordinary. God gives grace to the unimpressive but this is so counter to the way the world thinks. The way the world would think if the world was going to craft a story about the God of all creation coming to bring redemption, to bring hope to the world, it would be not to go to a nobody in a nothing town. It would be to go to the powerful, to the elite, to the influencers, because that's where change will take place. But God goes to Nazareth, to a young woman who doesn't know much and hasn't gone very many places to reveal his grace to her and to reveal his grace to the whole world. God must have screwed up, the world would say. He went to the wrong place. The angel got the wrong address of where he was supposed to go and who he was supposed to go to. But as Paul said, God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Listen, you don't have to be extraordinary to gain God's favor. You don't have to bring something to him. You don't have to figure things out. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to be from a certain place. You don't have to be from a certain family. You don't have to be from a certain ethnicity. You don't have to have it all together. You have to be you. You have to be you. Because grace is not something you find within yourself, deep within yourself. It's not something you muster up in your own strength and ability. Grace is something given It's undeserved and unmerited favor from God. And that's what Advent is about. That's what Christmas is about. It's not about giving. It's about receiving. It's about receiving grace upon grace because God gives grace to the ordinary. God gives grace to the ordinary. But here with Mary, we see that God does not just give grace to the ordinary, but he does so in an extraordinary way. The angel's announcement continues on. Verses 31 through 33, the angel says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's an overwhelming amount of information contained in these three verses, these birth announcement that the angel brings to Mary. He says, Mary, you're going to conceive and bear a son, though you're a virgin. 
Mary, his name will be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, God saves. He will be great. That's an unqualified statement. He will be great. Unlike John who said he will be great before the Lord. No, this son, Mary, will be great. He will be the son of the Most High. Most High is a favorite term used by David as he gives praise to God and refers to him. He will be a king, but not just any king. He will be a king who sits on David's throne. And he will reign as king forever. His kingdom will have no end. I mean, this is a huge statement. Mary, though uneducated, though simple, would have known that God had promised David long ago that he would have a king from his family who would sit on the throne and rule and reign over God's people forever. But this king who would come would not just be any king. He would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Mary, along with the rest of God's people, had longed for this day to come, especially under the tyrannical rule of a foreign people. So the angel is saying with crystal clarity to her and to us this morning, thou long-expected Savior is coming, and he will come through you, Mary, and he will come for you. Compared to the announcement about John, we see it's very clear that Jesus exceeds the greatness of John. Yet this angel doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to the middle of Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the biggest city, to the biggest place. He goes to a little town called Nazareth to an ordinary person to make this announcement. Mary also would have known the promise of Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before, he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, it's important for us to understand that Mary is not in need like Zechariah and Elizabeth were in need. She's a young woman. She's betrothed to be married. She's not barren like Elizabeth was. Mary, though, doesn't have a physical need. Mary, along with the rest of humanity, has a spiritual need. And God is going to meet that need through this child, through Jesus. Her son, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Jesus will be the hope of humanity. Light will come into the darkness. But Mary is perplexed, as you can imagine she would be, as you can imagine you would be if you heard something like this. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now there must be something different about her question from Zechariah's question. Because the angel said something very similar to him He questions the angel, yet he receives rebuke and discipline from the angel, but Mary doesn't. So there must be something different, and there is. The angel said Zechariah would be disciplined because he did not believe his word. We see that in verse 20. But Mary's question is not coming from a place of unbelief. It's not coming from a place of doubt. It's a question of curiosity. It's a question of intrigue. She's not saying, can God do this? 
What she's saying is, I believe God can do this. I know that God will do this, but how will he do this since I am a virgin? She knows that her God is extraordinary, but she's having a hard time understanding how she, an ordinary person, plays any part in this extraordinary plan. So Gabriel graciously answers her. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will do this work. The power of God will bring this about. Just like Isaiah 9 said, it's the Lord of hosts who will bring this about, who will make this happen. There's nothing sexual in this text about how this is going to happen. The Spirit coming upon her, the power of God overshadowing her, is just like what we saw when we were in Exodus chapter 40 several weeks ago, that the presence of God comes to dwell over the tabernacle, and Moses and Aaron can't even go into the tent because it's so intense and so strong. This is the same language here. That God will descend over her, will overshadow her, that his power and presence will be there, and this son will be conceived in this way. And because of that, he will be called holy. Because of that, he will be called the son of God. Jesus will be born of a woman and will be a man. But Jesus will be conceived by God, the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus will be God. If he had just come about through the physical offspring of being Joseph's son, that he would be nothing more than a man. But what we see from this and what we saw from what Alan read from Philippians chapter 2 is that Jesus is not half man and half God. He's 100% man and 100% God. And that's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but that's what God's word tells us. We need him to be both of those things. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5 say, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, his eternal son, who's existed for all eternity, father, son, and spirit. He sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This means that at the right time, In God's providence, Jesus came to be the redeemer of the world. Strangers with no hope, enslaved to sin and death, he came to be the redeemer that the world needed. And as Galatians 3.13 tells us, it tells us how he's able to be this redeemer. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, Mary didn't know at this point that what the angel was saying is that in order for her son to be the savior that the world needed, he would have to go to the cross, completely perfect and without sin. He would have to go to the cross to die as a substitute for her, to die as a substitute for her neighbors, and to die as a substitute for the nations. This is the secret rescue plan of God. That before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit planned to rescue the world from sin and death by sending the Son to us as one of us. He had to be man so that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He had to be God so that he might walk in perfect obedience and holiness. This is absolutely astounding, absolutely amazing. Mary would be amazed, and you and I should be amazed as well. The angel gives a gracious sign to Mary. 
Even though she doesn't ask for anything, the angel gives a gracious sign. Her cousin Elizabeth, he says, who is barren, has also conceived a son and is six months pregnant. He's essentially saying, Mary, you can know that what I'm saying is true and you can rejoice. Just go ask Elizabeth. This leads to our second point. Our God gives grace to the ordinary and our God is extraordinary. Our God is extraordinary. As one pastor says, the great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. Our God is extraordinary. A world that's in complete rebellion, undeserving of mercy, undeserving of grace. And our God has sought us out to redeem us, to restore us, to reconcile us. And get this, he doesn't do it by proxy. He doesn't send a representative. He comes. He saves. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, He sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And Jesus' birth would be similar to Adam's birth. Adam was the first man, but he was formed by God from the dust of the ground. Jesus was born of a woman, but conceived by God. Both are wrought by God alone. Both come about by God alone. Through Adam, though, came sin and death. But through Jesus comes righteousness and life. See, in this moment, in this instance, Jesus is being declared to be a new and better Adam because Jesus comes to reverse the effects of sin in this world. And he does it by taking on our sin. This is foolishness to the world. If we were going to write a story about how God would save the world, if we're going to sit down and write the script of what that's going to look like, it would not be sending the hero to a destitute town into poverty and humility, only then to die a criminal's death for nothing that he did. But that's the extraordinary nature of our God. He's extraordinary because he gives grace to the ordinary, and he does it in an unfathomable way. As Gabriel finishes his announcement to Mary, he says something key. Verse 37, he says, For nothing will be impossible with God. Can we just stop right there? For nothing will be impossible with God. All of us need to be reminded of that this morning, but some of us in this room in particular need to hear that. With all that's going on in the world right now, with all all that's going on in your life right now, God is extraordinary, and he does extraordinary things. Nothing is impossible with God. Man, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? That's the source of peace in your life, knowing that there's nothing in your life that's impossible for God. God is the God of the virgin birth that brought us the Savior of the world. And what this says to you and what it says to me today is that there is no sin that he cannot forgive. There's no brokenness that he cannot heal. 
There's no storm he cannot calm. There's no need he cannot meet. There's no heartache or pain that he cannot comfort. There's no life he can't redeem. There's no sinner he cannot save. The God of the virgin birth is the God who makes all things possible. Look, God knew you before you had a past. God knew you knowing what your past would be. And God knew you and he sent his son to die in your place, to die for you. Our God is extraordinary. And to that I say, amen. In John chapter 1, Philip, who would be a disciple, a follower of Christ, goes to Nathanael. And he goes to tell him that the promised one, the Messiah, has come, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael responds to Philip, and he says this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can something that extraordinary come from a place that is so ordinary? But Philip's response to the doubtfulness of Nathanael is great. He simply says to him, Come and see. Come and see. See, some of you today doubt the extraordinary grace of God that comes in and through Jesus, born of a lowly virgin girl named Mary. Some of you today doubt that anything good comes out of Nazareth. But to you today, I say the same thing that Philip said. Come and see. Come and see. Look for yourself. Look and listen to God's word. Pray and ask God to help you understand. Call out to him today to save you from your sin and your rebellion by trusting in Christ alone because our God gives grace to the ordinary because our God is extraordinary. Sojourn, we don't need extraordinary people. We don't need to be extraordinary people. We need to trust and follow an extraordinary God. This leads to our last point. Our God gives grace to the ordinary Our God is extraordinary. And the third thing that we see in this is that our God uses the ordinary for the extraordinary. Our God uses the ordinary for the extraordinary. Mary believed this and it changed her life. Look at how she responds to all that Gabriel has said to her in verse 38. It says this, after he's said all these things to her, she responds in this way, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. An ordinary girl from an ordinary place is captivated by the grace and power of an extraordinary God. And she responds in humble and faithful obedience. But just like Zechariah, this is not blind faith. This is not faith in faith. This is faith in God and his word. She's saying, I believe your word, God. I trust in you, God. I am your servant, God. So let your will be done in my life. Let your will be done in this world. See, there's a cosmic and a personal element to this, just like with Zechariah. The cosmic element to this is that the Savior of the world is coming. The King of kings who will rule and reign forever. That is amazing news, not just for Mary, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. But the personal element to this is that in order for this to happen, Mary must walk in obedience. It will affect her in more than one way in just saving her. It will affect her more than that. See, we need to understand that submitting to God's call is not always peaches and cream for us. Mary is young and unmarried. 
people would talk and jeer at her. They would assume that she was sexually immoral, that she had had sex before she was married because now she's pregnant. And if she tries to defend herself by telling this story, people are just going to mock her more, just going to laugh at her more. Sure, Mary, an angel came to you. Right. Even Joseph, who she's engaged to, initially sought to divorce her in quiet because he assumed immorality as well. Even after Jesus would be born, people would call him an illegitimate child. But Mary has faith. And Mary submits to the call of her God with joy, even though it will be hard at points. She wants to be used by God. It reminds me of the call and cost of discipleship that Jesus himself tells us about. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he asked this question, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. He uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, to advance his kingdom to see people from every tribe, every language, every nation experience redemption. He uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, to push back darkness, to fight injustice and racism, to fight for the cause of the fatherless, to care for the marginalized, to bring peace in places of chaos. That's extraordinary. That God would use someone like you, that God would use someone like me to do this work. But there's a cost to following Jesus. This would have disrupted Mary's life. Was it going to be worth it? Sometimes as I think about my schedule and my day and my week, I will look at meetings that I might need to go to or activities that I might need to participate in and kind of run a cost-benefit ratio analysis on that. Is the time I'm going to have to put into this, is the, the, the effort that I'm going to have to put forth in this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the cost worth the benefit? So often, we like the benefits of being saved by Jesus, but not the cost of following him. We like that God gives grace to ordinary people like you and me, but we don't like that God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And so we make excuses. Well, God, I, I had plans I have a five-year plan and a 10-year plan, and I, I came to college to do these things. I pursued this career to accomplish these things. I live in this house because this is part of my plan. I want to have this many kids in this amount of time. We have plans, and so we make excuses to maybe what God is calling us to do. We say things like, this is going to be too hard. It's going to re- require too much sacrifice. It's going to be too uncomfortable I can't talk to him about Jesus. He might laugh at me or mock me or ridicule me. I can't be friends with that person. They look different than me. They have a different culture than I do. I can't give generously to the mission of God right now because I need to do this or that. I can't speak truth to her. She might not like it. How often we are to say, God, I want to live for you in all that I do. I want to live for you in everything that I do. But I was wondering if you could take a look at my plans for how that might work out. 
We might like that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, but we complain about the what, the when, and the how of his plans. Mary didn't do that. Mary didn't do that because she trusted the God who saves and she trusted the God who speaks. So Sojourn, I don't want you to be a complainer about God's will in your life. I don't want to be a complainer about God's will in my life. I want to see God use ordinary people like you and like me to do extraordinary things. But let's not miss the ordinary part of that. I've said this before. It's not original to me. But what I desire for us as a church is to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. What this means is that seeing light break into the darkness of people's lives, seeing people's lives radically transformed by the grace of God doesn't mean that you need to be a ministry professional. Listen, going on staff at your church or a ministry is not more spiritual or holy, the holy thing to do. In fact, for some of you, I would say it's the complete opposite because that is not what God is calling you to do. When we strive to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality, it's then and only then that we will see God do his extraordinary work in our world. This means that your workplace can be reached and transformed by the gospel by you being there, taking up your cross and following Jesus. It means your neighborhood can be reached and transformed by the gospel by you living there, taking up your cross following Jesus. It means that your family can be reached and transformed by the gospel by you being a part of it, taking up your cross and following Jesus. It means that your campus can be reached and transformed by the gospel by you being a student there, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Listen, God is not looking for more professional Christians. God is looking for faithful followers. He's looking for faithful followers. Because God is the one who does the extraordinary work. God's the one that does that work. He uses ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. You're not extraordinary. God is the one who's extraordinary. God is the one who does that work. But get this, sometimes it might seem rather ordinary to you. Stay at home, mom. As you sit with your kids each and every day, seeking to care for them. That seems so ordinary. Sometimes it seems so boring, but God can use that to do extraordinary things in your children's lives. As you go to work every day and sit in the same cubicle and file the same reports and go to the same meetings over and over and over again, it seems so ordinary to you, but it's in those moments that God can do extraordinary things in the lives of the people that you interact with. Maybe it's just befriending your neighbor, just being a real friend of the person who lives next to you. Seems like such an ordinary thing to do, but it's in those moments that God does extraordinary things. So sojourn, be faithful. Be faithful with where he has you today. Be faithful to what he's calling you to do today, not what you want him to call you to do tomorrow. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Man, and I need to remember that today. As a pastor, I am called to be faithful, not extraordinary. As a husband, I'm called to be faithful, not extraordinary. As a dad, I'm called to be faithful, 
not extraordinary. As a neighbor, I'm called to be faithful, not extraordinary. As a friend, I'm called to be faithful, not extraordinary. Just an ordinary person doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. But hear me on this. In the midst of all that, and talking about the ordinariness, listen, let's not call our comfort zones faithfulness as an excuse to not be obedient. I don't want you to sit there and think right now that, okay, being ordinary, doing ordinary things means I don't need to step out of my comfort zone because here's the reality for some of us this morning is maybe you need to open up your home. Maybe you need to open up your bank account. Maybe you need to open up your life to someone or something that right now seems too hard. It seems too difficult. It seems that it'll take too much time. But Sojourn, we need to remember that there's a cost to following Jesus, but the benefits are always outweigh the cost in God's kingdom. As one scholar says, God can do great things for his cause and he can use anyone or anything to accomplish it. And that's good news for all of us today. There are no other qualifications needed, just humble obedience to our magnificently extraordinary God. And we do this because the Savior has come and he will come again. We do this because light has broken into the darkness. We do this because God gives grace to the ordinary. We do this because God is extraordinary. And we do this because God uses ordinary people like you and like me to do extraordinary things. So sojourn, let's get after it for God's glory and for the good of others. As we come to the table this morning to eat the bread and drink the cup, we are reminded of the simplicity and the enormity of the gospel. That God's son, who's existed for all eternity, came to us to rescue us as one of us. We're reminded this morning as we come forward that our only boast is in our God, not in ourselves. Christ's body was given for you. Christ's blood was shed for you while you were running from him. And so as you eat the bread this morning, as you drink the cup this morning, the only thing that you should be impressed with this morning is that the extraordinary grace of our God who saved a sinner like you. So as you come forward this morning, may you rejoice along with your brothers and sisters who come together with you. May we respond together in worship as ordinary people who are recipients of extraordinary grace. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take the bread and take the cup because this is a declaration that we are desperate for God's grace and that we recognize and realize and by faith have placed our faith, our trust in Jesus and him alone. That we recognize the only way that we can be reconciled to God is through Christ and what he's done for us. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, then we'd ask you not to come forward to take communion because we want you to take Christ first. So just hang out in your seat, pray, ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask our extraordinary God to save you today. And if you have questions about what that means, about what it means to truly know Christ, what it means to truly follow Christ, please come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to any of our other leaders. Go to a community group this week and share that with them. That's why this church is here. We want to help you understand what it looks like to truly know him and to truly follow him. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready. Just tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray.
Father, we are just blown away by the fact that you would craft a story like this. Lord, if we had tried to think of this on our own, we would never come up with this story, that you would go to such a humble place, a nowhere place to a nobody to deliver the most insane message possible that the Savior of the world would come. Not out of nowhere, he would come through the womb of a humble woman. And so Lord, I pray that as we think about that this morning, that we would recognize that we too are ordinary people. And so Lord, I ask that may we as ordinary people Ordinary people, just like Mary, may we be captivated by you, our extraordinary God. I pray that as we go throughout this week doing ordinary things, that we would recognize that it's in the moments of ordinariness that you do extraordinary work. So Lord, would you do that this week? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the opportunities that are before us, whether it's with our children, our family members, our roommates, our coworkers, our neighbors, just in our own fight against sin and being sucked into the narrative that this world tries to preach at us, may we just recognize, God, that you've called us to live differently. You've called us to keep our eyes fixed on you and not ourselves, not the things this world promises. Lord, we need your help to do that, and we need one another to do that. So I pray that we would be be a church of ordinary people, but as we Rest in our ordinariness as we rest in your extraordinariness, Lord, that we would be faithful to what you're calling us to do today. May you bring revival. May you bring awakening to this place. Would you you transform and change people's lives and allow us just the privilege of being a part of that? Lord, we thank you for your grace that Christ has come and he will come again. We praise you for that. We pray all this in his name. Amen.